0: Section One of the American Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rosehip. The American Egypt by Channing Arnold and Frederick J. Tabor Frost. Section One A Bird's Eye View of Mexico. PART One. Most of us want to do what we are not doing. In the majority of human hearts, deep down, is an intangible tormenting wish to go somewhere, to see some land, to do something which is not in the programme drawn up for us by the inexorable fate of birth and circumstance. Usually the longing is crushed out by the juggernaut wheels of life's ponderous car of necessity, which drives us all forward towards the unknown in a set groove from which the most desperate efforts never extricate us. We long for the North Pole. We sigh for a trip to the Antarctic regions. We dream of scaling the mountains of the moon, with the unreasoning longing of children we feel we shan't be happy till we get there and we are never happy we go on longing and living in brixton most of us have not left brixton most of us never will we the authors of this book were not living in brixton but in quite as commonplace a suburb, when the torments of unfulfilled aspiration seized us and shook us as a terrier might a rat. The demon of discontent shouted at us, grinned at us, sneered at us. You hate this suburb. Clear out. Go away, it said. Throw up your work and duty. Burst through the fetters of the commonplace. Well, we couldn't stand it we bore it for some weeks and then one midnight in the silence of the sleep time we knocked the ashes out of our pipes as we sat mournfully facing each other over our suburban hearth and from the fullness of our tormented hearts we cried aloud we will go to yucatan but our leaving brixton was not suspicious enough in its suddenness to alarm the tradesmen yucatan that curiously unknown peninsula easternmost portion of the republic of mexico which by reason of its wondrous ruined cities has earned the title of the egypt of the new world had long been a dream of ours we had put in years of study of the very few and scarce books describing some of those ruins and hard work on the literature of the problems of central american civilization before we had the satisfaction of leaving brixton but everything comes to him who knows how to wait and at last in pursuance of our resolution to shake the dust of the commonplace off our feet for a time at least we found ourselves on a very dingy november afternoon with two unwieldy packing-cases full of guns and saddlery and innumerable portmanteau standing on the prince's landing stage liverpool staring out seaward into the dank mist where an old salt declared our liner to lie it was obvious he did not for in a few minutes a dropsical tug was almost as broad as it was long, fumed up to the pier-side, and, hoisting the company's flag, invited us to go with it, trustingly into that mist from which we were destined to pass, though that looked an impossibility, into the dazzling glories of the eternal Carib summer. Having posted our last wills and testaments, and dying wishes to our friends in seventeen envelopes, and given one more pathetic glance at the sombre grey glories of the liverpudlian capital which stood out drear and grim behind us in the fading light we surrendered to the captain of the tug in company with other apprehensive-looking voyagers if you have never taken a long sea voyage and the etceteras and discomforts of many months travel in a land THE LANGUAGE OF WHOSE INHABITANTS YOU HAVE BEEN FOR WEEKS TRYING TO GRAPPLE WITH IN UNINTELLIGIBLE GRAMMARS, LOOM AWESOME IN YOUR MIND, THERE IS SOMETHING POSITIVELY TERRIFYING IN STANDING ON THE DECK OF A TENDER, AS ALL WELL-CONDUCTED LINER-TUGS INSIST ON BEING CALLED, ON A DAMP, DARK, AUTUMN AFTERNOON. ITS GRIMY DECKS AND ITS reek OF OIL OFFEND YOU, its chilly bareness its inhospitable straight-backed wooden seats the gaunt nakedness of its wallowing outline conjure up to your overwrought mind vague comparisons with the bare whitewashed execution shed of which you have read in the yellow press you feel you are in a nautical execution shed you stand there shivering You look back at the fast-fading, friendly, wooden joists of the landing stage. You wish you had never come. You feel as you do when you get into the dentist's room, having earlier in the day telegraphed to him that you must have the offending tooth out with gas. You see the deadly chair and the cylinder of nitrous oxide, and you feel that perhaps, after all, you could have borne the toothache supposing you shudder at the thought something went wrong and you never never woke up there now please open your mouth wide and breathe deeply oh no beg pardon mind your toes there sir please from an energetic officer in gold-laced coat as the gangway flashes out from the steamship's black side like a snake's tongue a grinding squeaking noise as the dropsical tug affectionately rubs itself against the fenders which hang on the liner's side a mad foaming maelstrom of grey sea-water whitened as the screw reverses a babel of orders and counter-orders and you are swallowed up into the floating town you are on board you look wildly round Nothing will save you now. The grim pilot in beaver cap stands on the bridge, significant official, to see that no hitch occurs in the execution. The steam whistle sounds mournful through the mist, fast settling into fog. The great engines, which are to work unceasingly for seventeen days and nights, break out into a long moaning, groaning, thumping, as they start upon their Sisyphean task, and you are off. Nothing is ever as one expects it. We expected the Atlantic to be at least riotously playful in November. We expected our boat, she was only 4,000 tons, to be tossed, as you flip an empty nutshell, by one great bullying roller to another, in their titanic play not a bit of it we steamed down the mersey out into the irish channel and though the good ship floridian rolled jerusalem we had to keep our eyes on the children for the deck was at 45 degrees nearly all day it was all hands to the kids to stop them slipping overboard we ate and we drank and the chill air off the irish coast became balmy and the mists broke and we raised our caps to my lord the sun whom we had not seen since the summer and before we knew where we were deck chairs were out and overcoats were off and officers in white drill uniforms paced a bridge shaded by snowy awnings and we leaned back and smoked dreamily in the sunshine and rejoiced that we had left brixton Some nineteen days later we had just serenely entered on the second course of our admirable daily breakfast, when a friendly officer's face appeared at the companion and uttered the monosyllable, LAND. It's a stupid enough looking word when it gets itself written, but it can mean a lot when for nearly three weeks you have not seen anything of it worth talking about. WE HAD BECOME SUCH SEA-DOGS. WE HAD GROWN SO USED TO OUR DAILY PROSPECT OF DANCING BLUE WAVELETS, OF THE SUN-BATHED INFINITE WATERS, DARKLING FROM sapphire TO SLATY GRAY AT THE HORIZON, OUR HORIZON. WE HAD SAT SO MANY NIGHTS CONTENTED UNDER THE AWNINGS IN THE MOONLIGHT, THE EXQUISITE TROPIC CALM OF THE SEA-NIGHT, broken only by the periodic music of the ship's bell with its haunting recitative all's well from the lookout man lulled by the magic of the eternal Carib summer we had also learnt in this rare fortnight the wisdom of the lotus eaters eating the honey sweet fruit of the tropic with never one wish to go homeward that it came as something approaching a shock to us that word land why we thought it was as extinct as the dodo time and space seemed to have melted for us into a world of infinite blues and golds and whites a world peopled by merry porpoises by silver-bright flying fish and snowy seabirds knives and forks clattered down on to plates and an eager throng of those whose island home was far beyond the seas dashed for the companion stairs we rushed on deck with something of the eagerness the great christopher must have felt as he hurried to his galleon poop when the spanish sailors saw from the masthead as in a glass dimly what they took to be the coast of a new world there was not much to see but stay what is that which floats magically suspended cloud-like before the glass you rub your eyes you dust the glass you look again yes right up in the sky there as far above the dark line of shore as the puffy white cloud spots which dot the boundless azure is a triangle of rose-tinted white and as you stare the wonder of it all grips you you see the sun glinting dazzlingly on its eternal snows you see the great rents and crevasses seeming its sides you see where the cloud bank blots out and shrouds its vast shoulders and flanks it is orizaba mighty orizaba raising its majestic head four miles into the infinite blue in the enthusiasm of the moment we all agreed even those of us who had suffered from the voyage and they were few that it was worth coming six thousand miles to see such a sight and we were all the better pleased with ourselves and our luck because our good skipper who had sailed to Veracruz, off and on for a quarter of a century, declared it was only once in ten times that the great volcano condescended to expose its marvellous beauties so well. Veracruz is a town in travail. Its labour pains have seized it. Accoucheur Sir Wheatman Pearson at the bedside is assisting at the delivery of a Marinopolis, a city of the sea. Majestic buildings are breaking out amid squalid Spanish stuccoed houses with frowsy passageways and garbage-strewn courtyards dating from Maximilian's day and earlier. Keys and wharves, lighthouses and customs offices plazas and docks broad asphalted roadways and stone houses are rearing themselves where once ere sir wheatman's stalwart navvy elves did their fairy work were naught but pestilential marshes spawning ground for the yellow jack mosquito tiny fever scourge bearer to the panic-stricken inhabitants As we steamed inside the great stone breakwater built of Cyclopean masonry, Veracruz's first line of defense from the inroads of the deep, the impression one gets is that of the incongruity of it all. The new customs house and officina de Correos, post office, palatial piles, stand out seaward on the plain far away from the green-shuttered, down-at-heel, ramshackle, hovel town, as if ashamed of it all. What you do feel is that, when the confinement is satisfactorily completed, Veracruz will be a great city. Today she is still building enterprise plus a plaza. Every Spanish-American town is a town with a plaza. Veracruz is a plaza with a town. We will get there in a minute, but meantime there are ropes being thrown from our liner to the quaint yellow-faced Mexicans on the quay, the indicator bell rings from the bridge, the needle flies round to the magic word STOP, and the huge steel muscles of the great panting tired engines are at rest at last. It is a glorious day the coast mists have melted away and the whites of the distant houses the dark greens of the palm trees the flags of all nations fluttering on the shipping make a vivid contrast in the blaze of sun with their distant background of lofty sand dunes rolling westward in a horizon of glistening white Towards Mexico City. The quay at Veracruz is a kaleidoscope of international trade life, a spectacle unexampled in its way. Great steamships, their hatches burst open, continuously belch out their many cargoes upon the wooden piers. The clouds of dust, the reeking smell of toiling men, THE SCREAMING OF THE STEAM WHISTLES, THE GRINDING AND CREAKING OF THE WINCHES, THE CRIES OF THE WORKERS, THE SHORT, SHARP WORDS OF COMMAND, THE hoarse SHOUTS IN A SCORE OF LANGUAGES, AND THE JANGLING CRASH OF IRON RAILS, OR GIRDERS, OR IRON SHEETING, AS EACH FRESH LOAD BREAKS FROM THE WINCH ONTO THE HEAPED-UP MASS BELOW, MAKE UP A VERITABLE TRADE HELL niggers from jamaica and the states the purple veins standing out like wheels upon their foreheads strain and grunt under huge bales koreans red-tinted flat-faced chinamen their blue wide trousers tucked up to their knees spaniards and mexicans italians and greeks the dapper japs Their lithe bodies and small faces Contrasting with Viking workmen From Sweden and Norway. Creole lads with raven-hued curly hair And sun-kissed faces, Their black velvet eyes alight With the lust of the South. High-cheek-boned, smooth-chinned Aztec Indians, ragged-garbed. Sailors of all races, Blue-bloused, guernseyed, naked chested cheeks and necks that golden bronze for which wind and sea are the only cosmetics jostle and push laugh and curse sweat and pant in their effort to live nowhere can one see the inwardness of the harsh struggle for life better than on vera cruz Key derelicts wastrels beachcombers sinners and sinned against bloodshot eyed drunkards and leaden gray opium smokers and eaters strong and weak healthful and sickly men with faces of vicious angels men with faces of devils let loose from hell they have come from the uttermost corners of the earth these groaning sweating reeking human beings to fight in blistering sun and pestilential dust for the right to live long ordered lines of porters wheel their laden trucks to the bonding sheds long lines of porters wheel their empty trucks like passing trains back to the gaping hatches of the giant ships under great umbrellas of scarlet yellow or green cottons jutting up like gigantic vari-coloured toadstools sit portly mexican dames coarse of face ponderous in bosoms and stomachs the trestle trays at their sides loaded with fulsome heaps of fly-marked fruits with sickly terrors of sugar and pastry euphemistically known as pan dulce sweet bread and sweetmeats of such unholy colors that they look as if they had been dipped in the devil's own dye-pot there are no cabs in Veracruz. if there were it would make no real difference to the unhappy traveler for there is no roadway to the quay's sides and baggage is shouldered by one of the innumerable rascally faced mexican touts or trundled in huge railway barrows down the piers and jolted over execrable roads towards the barn-like structure which does duty as terminus for the central mexican railroad one of the most wonderful lines ever laid a few hours in vera is enough to set the weary Briton humming perpetually the air of pay 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 everything in mexico is a question of money and everybody has his or her price it is often a large one and a trade union of robbers has decreed that you must pay a dollar two shillings a package to have your baggage conveyed from key to station a distance of a quarter of a mile It does not matter how many or how few are your impedimenta, nor the size of the package. The smallest must be paid for at the same rate, though in the reverse case you do not score, for a very large package is charged for at double rates. Unless you are content to drag portmanteau through the mob, you must foot this first outrageous bill. A fellow-passenger of ours, travelling quietly with his wife, paid twenty-four shillings for the transporting of his kit. The Customs House officials are fair-minded enough, and there is little trouble for the stranger there. Everything obviously for personal use is passed, ungrudgingly, with the single exception of silver plate or ornaments. Our only difficulty lay in explaining in execrable Spanish to Señor El Aduanero, Mr the Customs House Officer, that with a long tour in primeval forests and cruises amid archipelagos of islets before us, twenty pound weight of Cadbury's solid chocolate and two dozen tins of their cocoa essence were moderate estimates of our personal needs in the direction of this best of all nutriment he-centred trade, and it was some minutes before we prevailed upon him to take his eagle-eye off the suspiciously glistening tins which meant such comfort for us in our wanderings. Mournfully learning that our luggage would cost us sixteen shillings to move into safety till we sailed again for Yucatan, we entrusted it to an apparently honest railway agent with some misgivings. Never let your baggage out of your sight at Veracruz. The contents are often stolen in the very customs house. The luggage porters interchange their metal badges too, so that while number 29 takes your bag and swears to meet you at the station, if you ever have the luck to see that number again, you will honestly be obliged to admit to the police authorities that the wearer is not the same fellow whom you employed and well the matter rests there and your stolen bag in vera cruz but here's the plaza and your first glimpse of mexican life it is dusty and frowsy enough this stone-paved square with its tawdry green and yellow painted houses its ill-laid roads broken by crevasses and large holes under the flimsy tram lines where cobblestones have got displaced But there is just touch enough of the tropics to make it fascinating at its center is a two-storied kiosk bandstand above drinking booth below under the deep shade of giant laurels evergreen oaks tulip trees palms and orange trees stands an inner ring of chairs and round tables the outer circle is formed of iron garden seats backing on to the flower-beds rich with scarlet blossomed poinsettia twenty or thirty feet high with yellow and purple bell-flower blooms with scarlet tulipans and a pale pink and white blossom of a jasmine-like shape and size overhead in the thick leaves myriads of peaches bright-eyed sleek feathered cousins of the english blackbird chatter 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 Till you wonder if they will ever stop. The Veracruzian tells you they never do. On three sides of the plaza, the houses are arcaded. On the fourth is a hideously meretricious pile of yellowish stone, the cathedral. It is but ten a.m. Yet the sun is so fierce that the arcades are curtained off with sun-blinds reaching to the pavement edge within these tunnels of stifling shade vera cruz breakfasts at ten and dines at five and drinks all day tables for two tables for four or more tables of metal or of wood stained with ringed stains of wine glass or coffee cup are ranged up by the blinds leaving a passage for strollers all day almost all night at these tables sit men men of all conditions it is the kaleidoscope of the keys a shade higher and lower for the filthy sweating nigger at the hatch side catches something however little of the majesty of toil but these men they neither toil nor spin they have come in from plantations where they are almost kings And they hold their glasses in fever-yellowed hands And leer at the passing women and girls Whose coarse beauty shrouded in mantilla, Whose plump powdered necks and bosoms heaving opulent Under tawdry muslin frocks seem fitting part, The female complement to the drink-sodden scene. But stay, there is a pleasanter sight At that table over there. It's worth a glance. You are glad to look away from the wolfish-eyed victims of drink and debauchery at those two hearty English skippers, tanned and bearded, who take their liquor-like men and talk of their just-completed runs. They're in the place, but not of it, and somehow you think you catch an envious glance thrown their way by the gaunt, blear-eyed creature who crawls past them after his fifth cocktail. In the streets the picturesque Mexican life is a-doing. The ranchero, so tight of trouser that it looks as if his legs must have been melted and run in hot into those grey pantaloons, like bullets in a mould, silver-spurred, his huge mother shipton shaped felt hat embroidered and bound with silver laces his feet hidden in the great leather pockets which serve as stirrups here canters into the plaza on a white arab round the corner comes the milkman on a mule his four jars of milk bulking so large round his saddle that you wonder he can get on or off the raucous shouts of the Indians as their wagons jolt and bump and rattle over the broken cobbles, the mula-mula of the Mexican as he urges on the mules which draw the yellow-varnished tram-cars down the rickety lines, the cracked treble note of the old woman who thrusts her roll of lottery tickets into your face with the eternal, Por mañana! and the loud insistent cry of the brown-faced barefoot rascally handsome newsboys mingle into one inharmonious chorus on the shady seats of the plaza loll the ever-tired mexican workmen smoking cigarettes twelve strikes and the troop of rurales in gray uniforms with carbines and heavy revolvers the mounted police ride out from their barracks to take their work of patrolling the town the townspeople gather and look and then they sleep again while in their shirt sleeves cigar or cigarette between their lips mexican clerks balance ledgers in banks and merchants offices behind lattice blinds and a postmaster in white drill trousers and colored silk vest sells you postage stamps between puffs of smoke the last few years have made a world of difference to vera cruz a decade back for three-quarters of the year it was plague ridden in the dusty street arteries up and down which its vicious frowsy life is pumped forwards and backwards to its plaza heart you might have walked and scarcely found one doorway without the great splashed crimson cross seal of the yellow fever fiend within today it is growing into a health resort but even now sanitation is embryonic Dust carts. "'Gruesome guillotine-like tumbrils parade the streets, "'And gilded pools a steed would sniff at "'Make road-crossings into fording-places "'Where you must leap from one broken cobble to another "'And stumble into chasms of earth and unsightly ruts. "'But the gods have been good to this evil little town, "'For there are armies of unpaid scavengers "'Who parade the streets.' doing their work so silently and so perfectly that the municipality has passed a law by which an injury to one of them is a special crime and misdemeanour heavily fined these are the zopilotes, as the mexicans call the american turkey buzzards to kill one of which costs the murderer at least five dollars cadet branch of the vulture family in their skinny bald heads THEIR RUSTY BLACK, MOTH-EATEN FEATHERS, THEIR GREAT, SPLOTCHY CLAW FEET, THEIR TORN AND RAGGED WINGS HANGING LOOSE AND LOW. NATURE HAS GIVEN THEM JUST THE DRESS BECOMING SUCH BIRDS OF HELL. NO, YOU DID NOT BELIEVE BIRDS COULD BE SO UGLY. BIRDS COULD HAVE SUCH HATEFUL EYES, SUCH SPLAY FEET, SUCH BLOTCHY BEAKS. THEY ARE EVERYWHERE. They perch on the cathedral towers, on the balconies of houses, they ride on the dust carts, fight for the unspeakable in the gutters, tear at the rotting fish-head, and settle in scores round the carcass of a dog. A score of them amble in front of you on the pavement, and hop their ungainly hideous sideways hops as you spurn them, veritable birds of Beelzebub, Lord of Flies." But Veracruz has good reason to thank heaven for her flying dustbins, and as they peer sideways at you out of their blinking, roomish eyes, they seem to know it. We don't fear you, passer, you could imagine them saying, though one of the uncanniest facts about these awful birds is that they have no cry. They are as silent as the dead they filch and feast on we are an essential part of this earth hell we are the devil's bailiffs you see the birds in other mexican towns and cities you see them in yucatan perched on the walls of haciendas or in the woods wrenching at the hide of a rotting cow but they never seem to personify evil as at Veracruz. and there is evil there there is vice in the air round the town clings an indescribable haunting sense of sin sin which is swinish and foul not the dazzling vice of a semiramis court the glorified debaucheries of a capri but a dreary drink-sodden fetid sin clinging to the town like the noisome smell of a charnel-house not that you see it there ain't no ten commandments at vera cruz but you don't see them broken you simply feel they don't exist outward decorum here as in most mexican towns is a feature street women are banished to a special quarter and the shops are cleanly compared with some of paris in the rue de rivoli or the boulevard de montmartre but the women and men the girls and the boys have such faces and eyes that you feel that anything everything is possible perhaps we do the new city of the true cross injustice all trade centers where the foreign sailor comes are much of a muchness we simply record our impressions peradventure there be seven good men in vera cruz there are probably many score more but one cannot help wishing the streets did not smell so rancid. Time was so much the essence of our tour that we decided to travel by the night train to Moctezuma's capital, where our chief business was the procuring of passports. Despite the lamentations of acquaintances who assured us we were throwing away the opportunity of a lifetime, the sight of the train's climb of 8,000 feet in the sunlight, As it proved, we had perhaps in some ways a really more awe-inspiring night spectacle, for the moon, which had bathed the tropic seas, night after night for us, in such gorgeous silver, had but just passed its full the very day of our arrival in port. End of section 1